Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. The outing of a CIA informant inside of the Kremlin raises new questions about Russiagate and the intelligence officials behind it. The informant has been identified as Oleg Smolenkov, a mid-level Kremlin official. CNN first reported that the CIA removed Smolenkov from Russia in 2017 amid concerns President Trump could expose his identity. According to one source, there was, quote, no equal alternative inside the Russian government, providing both insight and information on Putin. A person directly involved in the discussion said that the removal of the Russian was driven in part by concerns that President Trump and his administration repeatedly mishandled classified intelligence and could contribute to exposing the covert source as a spy. That turns out to be false. Reports from The New York Times and Washington Post make clear that it was in fact leaks to the media that forced Smolenkov's departure. According to the Russian media, Smolenkov disappeared during a visit to Montenegro in June 2017. After that, he turned up in the U.S. living under his own name in a luxury home in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. All this raises many questions, including how high-level and how valuable Smolenkov actually was. Well, to discuss this, I spoke earlier to John Kiriakou. He is a former CIA analyst, best-selling author, and co-host of the podcast, Loud and Clear. I began by asking John Kiriakou what he makes of the fact that Smolenkov was so easily identified in the media and found to be living under his own name. You know, I was astounded uh, when I read that he was living openly under his own name. I didn't have a lot of experience at the CIA with, with defectors or people who had been resettled, but I had some. And they were never, ever resettled in their own names, and they were almost never resettled in the Washington area. The idea is, you know, the world's a small place, and you don't want them to run into people with whom they used to work, people who may mean them harm. And so rather than settling them in Stafford, Virginia, where they may run into a Russian diplomat at the mall, you resettle them in Bismarck, North Dakota, or in some town in Arizona or Missouri or something. So I was surprised by that. The fact also that he was living openly under his own name tells me a couple of things. One, this source wasn't as sensitive as we may have been led to believe. Or two, even if he was sensitive, the information that he provided either has been overtaken by events or isn't really that important in the long run. And someone at some point determined, maybe he determined that it just wasn't worth living under an assumed uh, identity. The problem, though, with that scenario, uh, which I think is quite plausible, is that would then undermine a huge basis for the entire Russian investigation, because according to several accounts, Washington Post, New York Times, uh, he was a critical source for the CIA in its determination that Russia was indeed launching this massive interference campaign with the aim of electing President Trump. Well, you made a point on Twitter that I think is very important. I'd like to I'd like to sort of run it down here. Um, we know that he was not as highly placed as the media initially led us to believe. He was more of a mid-level bureaucrat in the foreign ministry or in the office of the presidency. He was not a high-level uh, bureaucrat, and he didn't have daily direct access to Vladimir Putin. Well, John Brennan apparently told President Obama that he did have access to Vladimir Putin. We know that that wasn't true, and we also know that John Brennan then went around his Russia operations people 
It's a group inside the CIA called Russia House and went directly to the president. That is a highly, highly unusual thing to do. Um, but I think he did it because he knew that the source wasn't well placed. He knew that the source was lying about his access to Putin or information coming from Putin. And I think that for whatever reason, John Brennan really wanted the president to run with this narrative that the Russians were trying to somehow impact the 2016 election when the intelligence just simply wasn't there. So just to put a fine point on this, uh, in terms of what Brennan did in delivering this, the intelligence from the supposed high-level source to uh, uh, the Obama White House, uh, I'm going to read you an excerpt from the book The Apprentice by The Washington Post, uh, Greg Miller. So it's talking about when Brennan received this uh, bombshell information uh, from the secret source, who turns out to be this uh, guy now living in the uh, uh, suburbs of D.C. By the way, this information comes in late July, uh, just as the FBI's Russia investigation is opening. It's curious that if Putin had ordered this uh, sweeping interference campaign, why this information didn't arrive earlier if this Kremlin mole supposedly had such high-level access. But... So what Brennan does with this, what Brennan does with this uh, is he keeps it out of the presidential daily brief because according to Greg Miller, quote, Brennan worried that the highly restricted distribution list of the presidential daily brief was far too broad for the agency's explosive information. And then Brennan went on to create a fusion cell, uh, you know, under him at the CIA that controlled all this intelligence. So is there a precedent for this, John, where uh, the CIA director deems uh, information to be too explosive to be included in the presidential daily brief? Yes and no. What happens when there is information that's too explosive uh, for inclusion in the PDB is the analyst uh, in charge of whatever account uh, the information falls under will write something called a blue border report or a black border report. So it's classified either operationally or it's classified at a level above top secret. The, the reason for that is there are something like 16 people who are entitled to PDB briefings. Not all 16 have a need to know that information. Um, so maybe six do or eight do. So if you're gonna tell the president, of course you have to tell the vice president. If it has to do with foreign policy or defense policy, you have to tell the secretaries of state and or defense. But then you also have to tell their deputies. You have to tell the national security advisor, certainly, and you have to tell his deputy. So even if you keep it out of the PDB, still a lot of people are going to know it. When I say a lot, I mean a half a dozen or more people are, are going to know it. Now, with that said, what's unusual is for John Brennan to have cut out his own people when I was at the CIA, I was uh, near the end of my career, uh, the executive assistant to the deputy director for operations. And our Near East operations office was running an incredibly sensitive source uh, close to Saddam Hussein. Now, this information that we were getting was so sensitive that it went into its own database and only a half a dozen of us or so in the entire building had access to the information to the point where I wasn't allowed to brief it in uh, the morning meeting with the the director, the deputy director, and all the associate deputy directors. Only one of the associate deputy directors had access to the information, but I still briefed it. I would print off the relevant cables and I would hand carry it 
to to the deputy director and the associate deputy director. Now, the information was still coming from Near East uh, operations and their people still had access to it. So George Tenney hadn't cut out the Near East people from their own case. And that appears to be what John Brennan did. He cut out his Russia people from their own case so that he could take the information himself unvetted, uncorroborated, unverified and give it to the president and say that the Russians are trying to essentially steal the election. We do know from the um, uh, House intelligence report that was done by Republicans uh, in March 2018 that they faulted Brennan for what they called an unusually constrained review process uh, when it comes to the production of the intelligence that went into the January 2017 intelligence assessment that accused Russia of this intelligence campaign. House Republicans, for whatever reason, said that Brennan subjected this to um, uh, scrutiny uh, or subjected this to constraints that were unusual. And they also faulted uh, the finding about Putin ordering this influence campaign to elect Trump to, be, to have suffered from, quote, significant tradecraft failings. One more thing, John, on this front about Brennan. You mentioned um, the uh, Iraq war and the intelligence used for that to build up the case against uh, Saddam Hussein. Uh, I want to ask you about um, uh, another quote from uh, Greg Miller, The Apprentice. And I'm going to quote for myself here because I summarized this passage in a recent article for Real Clear Investigations. Talking about the period when Brennan is getting all this intelligence, including presumably from this sensitive source. Quote, uh, Brennan sequestered himself in his office to pour over the CIA's material, now quoting from Greg Miller, staying so late that the glow through his office windows remained visible deep into the night, unquote. Brennan, quote, ordered up not just vetted finish assessments, analytic reports that had gone through layers of review and revision, Miller adds, but also, quote, what agency veterans call the raw stuff, the unprocessed and underlying material. Unquote. Again, that's from that's my summary quoting Greg Miller there. So, when I read to you, John Kiriakou, that Brennan ordered up the raw stuff, the on the unprocessed underlying material, as the basis for the intelligence that was formed to make the case that Russia interfered in the U.S., does that raise any red flags for you? Oh, oh, a very, very big red flag. First of all, as a matter of practice, you never ever give the raw data to the policymaker. Um, that was something that was done during the George W. Bush administration, where uh, Vice President Cheney demanded the raw intelligence. But more often than not, raw intelligence is just simply incorrect. It's factually incorrect, or it's the result of the source who's a liar, or it's the result of the source who has only part of the story. And so you can't trust it. You have to vet it and compare it to the rest of your all source information to see what's true, what's not true, and then only the true information you use in your analysis. For the director of the CIA to be using the raw data is highly unusual because that's what you have a staff of thousands to do for you. When the, when the information comes in, it goes to the analysts, right? So the analysts all sit around, they think the big thoughts, they figure out what's true, what's not true, and they make their, their uh, analytic judgments, judgments based on the all source information. Now that goes to review at the branch level and then it's sent all around the building to every analyst in the building who has a stake in that analysis. From there it goes to the division level or group level it's sometimes called. And then from the group level it goes up to 
the president's daily brief staff. Once they've edited, and that's the third level of editing, then it goes to the deputy director of the CIA for intelligence. If human, sources intelli uh, human source intelligence is used, it also goes to the deputy director for operations. So you've got five levels of editing. And then once it's all completely done, then it goes to the director. Well, it's done. It's been vetted. It's been analyzed. There's nothing else to do with it. So the, the notion that the director of the CIA would be holed up in his office into the middle of the night with the raw data, after that raw data has been analyzed from here to kingdom come, just makes no sense to me unless John Brennan had his own narrative and was trying to figure out a way to convey that narrative to the White House and use the data to support his analysis rather than the analysis of his experts. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier, all the more incentive then for John Brennan to keep all this out of the presidential daily brief, because if he includes yes. it, then it gets subjected to more scrutiny. And, and don't forget yeah. that the president's daily brief, after a while, it's going to be um, declassified, right? We ah. have 35-year mandatory declassification in this country, and those PDBs are going to end up in some presidential library somewhere. And 35 years from now, people are going to read it, and they're going to say, this John Brennan was an idiot. <laughs> well, if it's, if it's in a blue border report, it's not subject to mandatory declassification. Huh. Okay, final question. It appears that the catalyst for this uh, source's removal from Russia was not uh, Donald Trump, as CNN first tried to report, uh, because the New York Times had a report later on that day talking to current and former officials. And the picture from that is very clear that actually it was media leaks by intelligence officials that had to force his removal because the CIA first tried to remove him reportedly in late 2016 before Trump even takes office. Uh, the source said no, he wanted to stay in Russia. That led to concerns that he was in fact a double agent and was not pro providing reliable intelligence. After then, that's when we start seeing leaks in the media about the source's existence. NBC News alludes to it in late December 2016, right after uh, the source probably would have refused exfiltration. And then Greg Miller, who I quoted earlier, he comes out with a report in the Washington Post in June 2017 talking about the fact that, uh, th that, the, that the U.S. had a mole inside the Kremlin. It's around then that uh, this uh, individual, Oleg Smolenkov, then is exfiltrated, reportedly on a trip. Uh, he goes on vacation to Montenegro and uh, it makes it look like he's been subjected to a robbery and disappears. Then he turns up in the U.S. So what do you make of that, John, that it looks like it was the fact that perhaps it was leaks from U.S. intelligence officials that might have spurred his exfiltration. What would, a, what would the motive be there if indeed that, that's what happened? You know, this reminds me very much of what happened with a handful of Soviet sources in the 1970s and the early 1980s, where their identities were leaked because there were fights inside the CIA over whether or not they were legitimate sources or double agents. Um, what better way to smoke them out? than to expose their identities in the press or to leave enough breadcrumbs that the trail eventually goes back to them. So if the SVR, the GRU, or whatever investigative unit in Russia is looking for their mole, the, their, their investigation is gonna take them to the actual source. So what does the source do? Does he blow you off and stay in Russia, which means he was a double agent, or does he agree to come to the United States and go into hiding under an assumed name, which means he was a legitimate source? 
Well, this source kind of falls somewhere in the middle, doesn't he? He comes to the United States. He allows himself to be exfiltrated in this very dramatic James Bond-like uh, operation in Montenegro. And then he buys a house uh, with cash in Stafford, Virginia, and lives under his, uh, his true name. So I, I'm not really sure what to make of this. Now, there's, there's a third possibility. And the possibility is that you've got a group of idiots running the CIA who play flat, fast and loose with the identities of some of their most sensitive sources and that this was a human screw up and that they had to pull the guy out. Uh, this is a story, uh, Aaron, I think is, is not done where we're not, we don't yet have all the facts. I think there's a lot more to this. Uh, certainly agree with that. I look forward to talking to you uh, more, John Kiriakou, as more details emerge. John Kiriakou, former CIA analyst, co-host of the podcast and radio show Loud and Clear. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.